morning. How's everybody doing? Good? <laughs> used to, I used to do roofing. And there was this one guy that we'd work with every now and then. He had another crew, and you'd, you'd pick him up for work and go, say, hey, how you doing this morning? He'd go, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to rock. And uh, I have no idea why I thought of that just now other than I hope that you are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and ready to rock this morning. So we look at God's Word. Go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Uh, this is where we were in the Bible reading plan this last week. Although we called an audible, I hope I didn't confuse too many people. If you didn't read Psalm 24 this past week and you thought it was something else, that's not your fault. It's ours. We kind of messed. We had to flip-flop uh, Luke 24, which was the week of Easter, and then Psalm 24 uh, was the previous week. But we did that this week because we did Luke 24 the week before. Anyway, we are in Psalm 24 this morning. Psalm 24 is, um, it kind of comes to the end of this little triad of Psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And in each one of them, I think that they're placed like this on purpose because that you, you see kind of a full picture of who Jesus is. So in Psalm 22, you have Jesus as the, as the substitute and the sacrifice, the crucified Lamb of God. Again, we, we spent several weeks looking at that, um, where it's a, a view not just of the cross, but from the cross, uh, prophetically, through the mouth of David, a thousand years before the cross ever happened, where, Jesus, uh, where, where we experience somewhat of the suffering of Jesus as we look at that, that psalm. Then in Psalm 23, of course, and we didn't spend a ton of time on that because I did two weeks on Psalm 22, but you have Jesus as the shepherd. So the substitute and then the shepherd. And then here in Psalm 24, you have Jesus as the Savior King. He's the conquering King. He's no longer just the crucified Messiah or just the shepherd, but he's coming back as the conquering King. And there's such good stuff in this passage. I'm not going to read it at the outset like I usually do. What I want to do is I just want to kind of come to the text this morning a little bit more inductively, meaning that I just want to kind of let it unfold so I'm just going to kind of begin to, to read and share a few comments here and there, and then I'll kind of draw a few lessons as we kind of uh, wrap up and kind of, uh, and kind of close out. So just a, just a couple of, um, I guess, little tips or pointers for when, you're, for when you're reading the Psalms that come in handy in many different places in the Psalms, but especially here in Psalm 24. First of all, of all is this little word, Selah. Selah. Did you guys notice that? The end of verse 6. In the end of verse 10, uh, Selah, it's also a singing group, worship group uh, today, but, but the, it, it's a Hebrew word, and all the commentators and scholars will tell you the same thing, is that they, we don't know fully what it means, okay, that is the, the Hebrew word, Selah, but most likely it's a musical term, and it indicates some sort of a pause, Okay, it indicates some sort of a pause. So the point being is, you know, kind of like we just sing songs and there's, different, and there's different verses and there might be a little bit of a musical interlude in between, is that when you see this, the point is that you, you take what you just read and then say, la, you just pause and you think about, again, what you, what you just read before you go on. And so the reason this is helpful when, in studying the Psalms is that when you see this, um, it, it kind of naturally breaks the psalms into different categories, or, or not categories, but kind of out like uh, uh, divisions. And so, as, so in this case, in Psalm 24, you have it at the end of verse 6, and that you have it at the very end of the psalm at the end of verse 10. So you kind of naturally have two sections, verses 1 through 6, and then verses, verses 7 through 10. 
And we'll come back and we'll talk more about that and see how that plays into this. Secondly, is this idea of parallelism in the use of Hebrew poetry, okay? So you'll see this throughout all the Psalms, but it holds true for almost every single verse in this Psalm especially, is this idea of parallelism. So, for example, verse 1. What parallelism is, is this, uh, this idea that you're going to say one thing and then say it again in just a slightly different way. So, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So you've got the earth and then fullness thereof. And then he says the same thing again, just in a slightly different way. The world and those who dwell therein. So you've got earth and world, and then you've got the fullness thereof, and then those who dwell therein. So the, the idea here is just to say the same thing in a slightly different way, but it kind, of, it kind of builds it out. It moves it from black and white to color, okay? So if you ever watch any of those old, like, uh, I don't know, Lassie or the Andy Griffith show. I know everybody was watching Lassie and the Andy Griffith show this past week, right? Um, but, you know, they were originally done in, like, black and white, but, you know, they've been redone now in color. And that's the idea is that it kind of brings it, it brings more of a fullness to it as, as you read it. And so just keep those two things in mind whenever you read the Psalms, but especially here because those kind of come into play as we work our way through it. So again, <clears throat> let's just begin to talk here. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This is kind of what we talked about at the beginning of this year when we were working our way through Genesis. God is creator. God is creator. Everything is his. The earth and the fullness thereof. And you're like, okay, well, does that mean like, like animals, plants, and like money and stuff like that? But like he doesn't actually own me too, does he? Yes, he does. The world and those who dwell therein. That's us. We belong to him. He owns us. You know, it, so just quick implication. You know, it's not possible for God to infringe upon you, right? It's not possible for God to infringe upon your rights or your schedule or your plans because that would imply that, well, I have my plans and then God is infringing. No, no, no. Everything is his, right? Have you ever... Have you ever talked to a space invader? Not an alien. But do you know that person who just doesn't get personal space? Sorry, I'm, a, I, I'm sure none of you are this person. But that person that you're like, you're talking to them and, you're, and they're just like right here and you're like, yeah man, good to see you. <laughs> and, then, and they just kind of like follow. Like they, they, they're just in, like, you know, invading your personal space or maybe they just ask too personal of questions. Or maybe they're just a little bit presumptuous with the way that they think that you ought to do something, maybe the way you ought to parent or the things you ought to buy or not buy or the way you spend your money or whatever. And, and we can kind of say like, well, that's none of your business because this is mine and it's not yours and you're violating a personal boundary right now. That's just never true of God. You got to get this, folks. The earth is his and the fullness thereof Many times we begin to get rubbed because we feel that God is infringing upon us somehow. And in that moment, we have forgotten who we are and we've forgotten who he is. He's the creator. Verse 2, 4. So he just said, God is creator, everything belongs to him. Why is that true? For he has founded it upon the seas. And again, the parallelism, he has established it upon the rivers. Why is it his? He made it. He made it. He can do with it what he wants. That's why. 
Okay? So this isn't some sort of jump of logic here. He made it. It's his. It belongs to him. He can do with it what he wants. So if you ask the question at the beginning of the psalm, who is God? David, the writer here, is starting off building this picture. God is the creator, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Everything belongs to him. He cannot infringe upon anyone's rights. It's not possible for him to do that because he owns everything. And then the question, two parallel questions, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So you've got the hill of the Lord and his holy place. These are both the same, the same thing. Jerusalem, the Old Testament, was, was built upon uh, a hill. Okay? And so whenever it talks about going to Jerusalem, you would talk about going up to Jerusalem. Um, my cute little wife, I, just, I tease her all the time because she's always talking about like going up to Columbus or down to Cleveland. You know what I mean? It's like directionally. Does anybody else do that? Um, she just, she can't, she can't get it right. I love her so much, but she just can't get it right. Um, and so I always tease her about that. But, and I was confused at first too. I thought maybe some of the biblical writers had the same issue because they would always talk about like going up to Jerusalem, even and I'd look on a map and I'm like, well, they're coming from the north and what's their, well, it's, the idea there is because you were always like, as you came to Jerusalem, God's holy city, like you were, you were going up. You're going kind of up the mountain that the city, that the city was built upon, and probably like in the on the natural level when this is written, this is kind of the idea is that they're ascending not just the hill of the Lord but also the Temple Mount, um, where the temple was built, and so there was this idea of as you came to God, you were you were working your way up. And the question here is not just though in the natural, but but spiritually speaking, it's like who can stand in God's presence? Who can stand in God's presence? This holy creator, all-powerful God, who can stand before him? Who can possibly approach this holy God? Verse 4 is going to answer these questions. And this should make us kind of gulp. Because who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands in a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And the reason that should make us gulp is because there is not a person who has ever been born who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up their soul to an idol, to what is false, or sworn deceitfully. Nobody. And so David, in writing this psalm here, has brought us very quickly to this tension that we have to deal with, that we have to face, is that God is holy and we are not, and the only people that can approach him come into his presence, which is what we were made to do on the one hand, is the very thing that we can't do because of our sin. And you see here in verse 4, too, just a very good, I think it's just a good summary of, of our sin when he says clean hands, pure heart. So again, notice the parallels. Hands, what we do, but we need a pure heart in order to do things purely. And then you've got this idea of our soul, again, our inner part, and then what we say, not swearing deceitfully. All of our actions can be summed up into two categories, the things that we do and the things that we say, Right? But those are all tainted for all of us, and they're both connected to our heart and our soul. 
So Jesus made it very clear that, you know, everything that comes out of a man comes from within a man. Everything that we do comes out of his heart. Everything that we say that's evil comes out of an evil heart. And so we've got, we've got a heart issue here. And so there's this tension of who's going to be able to come into God's presence. Verse 5, this person, or these people, if we want to come into God's presence, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So again, the parallels, he'll receive blessing and righteousness. What is the blessing that he's talking about? Not just, not, not physical blessings. New cars, new houses, more money, bigger bank accounts. The blessing, again, as you notice the parallelism, the blessing is the righteousness. That's what we need. We need righteousness from God. That's the blessing that we need in order to come into his presence this God of our salvation. And then verse six, I love verse six, and this is gonna kind of shoot us off into another portion of the, of the scriptures for a little bit as we kind of chase this rabbit because there's something here that I think David wants us to see. Verse six, such is the generation, so he's continuing to describe these people that can come into God's presence. We need clean hands, pure heart, we'll receive blessing, this blessing of righteousness. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Then it says, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. And then, like I said at the beginning, Selah. We're supposed to stop, go. Okay, what's he, what's he talking about here? What's he want us to get? We need to pause and we need to think. And I think one of the big clues here that unlocks much of the, much of the text is this idea of Jacob. So, um, little insight here. You wouldn't have, you don't, again, I, I, whenever I talk about Greek and Hebrew stuff, don't think that you have to know this. The key is just to meditate upon it, and you can still, you can still get there. But um, textually, the, that little phrase, seek the face, and then of the God of Jacob, of the God of is not in the, in, in the original Hebrew that this was written in. It literally just reads, who seek the face, Jacob, or who seek your face, Jacob. And so David here wants us to think about Jacob, and probably somehow how Jacob sought God's face. Well, there's a very interesting story. If you'll turn to Genesis 32, <coughs> Genesis chapter 32, of Jacob wrestling with God, and in some way, although it was somewhat veiled, seeing God face to face. Let me just read this and then I'll explain what's going on here. Genesis chapter, chapter 32, 22 through the end of the chapter. It says, the same night he arose and took his two wives and his male servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok and he took them and he sent them across the, the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Then the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint and he wrestled with him. Uh, as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name no longer shall be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, now listen, for I have seen God face to face, 
and yet my life has been delivered. So do you see the link with Psalm 24 where he says, seek your face, Jacob? I believe that David in writing that is wanting us to think about this story, which even again back in his time and place, the people of God, um, just chronologically, would have had this story already about their forefather, Jacob, who wrestles with God and who in some way sees God face to face. So what's going on here in Genesis chapter 32? Because I think this is important for us to understand what David is calling us to, to seek God's face in, um, in, Psalm, in Psalm 24. Do you know what the name Jacob means? It literally means heel grabber. So if you remember, Jacob was a twin. Him and Esau were twins. Esau comes out of the womb, and literally as they're coming out, Jacob is grabbing hold of Esau's heel. But that idea of heel grabber, it, it, it more carries with it the idea of supplanter or most commonly known as just deceiver. Jacob's name means deceiver. Jacob was a shady cat. He was shady. He steals the birthright from his brother. His brother was a, Esau wasn't a great guy either, um, and the Bible doesn't commend him for quickly selling uh, his birthright, but Esau comes in from the field after a long day of hunting, and again, back then, it's not like you just picked up a bottle of water, you know, a little, you know, bag of chips or something to take with you, like on the hunt. I mean, food was hard to come by. You had to go to the source, but he'd been out for a while hunting and comes in and he's famished and, and he says, well, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. I need some food. And Jacob's like, sell me your birthright first and then I'll give you some because Jacob had been in the kitchen making some soup. And so, uh, and so he's like, yeah, you know, what good is it to me? What good is the birthright if I die? So he, you know, here, you, you can have it. And he swears that he can, he can have it. So Jacob, you know, tricks him in that way and gets it. Later on, there's the story of where at the end of his life, Isaac, their father, is going to give this blessing. And the blessing was to go to the oldest son. The blessing was a really big deal. It wasn't just about natural um, uh, inheritance, but it was also the spiritual inheritance that they were to receive. And if you remember the story, Esau was a really hairy guy, like really hairy <laughs> and so and so Jacob puts these uh he puts like sheep skins on his arms and it because Isaac is kind of blind and and Isaac wants to bless him but he can't really see and so Jacob goes it, it, it's me dad it's Esau and so he's like let me feel you and so he reaches out and feels this the sheep wool like these, these hairy arms and then he he blesses him and so but he, he Jacob totally lied he was a deceiver. He goes and he um, goes to find uh, a wife and he wants to marry Rachel and he, he uh, Laban, who's also his uncle, kind of, you know, puts one over on the one who puts one over on guys and, and he tricks him and he, you know, he thinks he's working for Rachel for seven years, but instead he, he you know, Laban gives him Leah and then he, so he works another seven years for Rachel. Again, I know I'm kind of giving some broad strokes here, but if you guys are familiar with some of these Old Testament stories, you'll get the idea. And then, uh, and then he finally gets Rachel, but then, you know, um, God's blessing Jacob, making his um, herds and sheep and stuff prosper, and so he just leaves kind of in the middle of the night, takes off quick, and goes away from, from Laban, and so Laban's, you know, kind of upset because he, you know, loses his two daughters and his grandkids and all this, and all this stuff, and this, so this is like, and again, that's just kind of the overview, but this is like 20 years, at least, probably, of Jacob's life, where he's just wrestling and deceiving, and now the context of this story where Jacob ends up wrestling with God who, who came down in some sort of a human form, he would do that throughout the Old Testament, it's called a theophany, but is Jacob is now coming and he hears that his brother, who he has not seen for roughly 20 years, and that he's ripped off, really messed up his life, is coming at him with 400 men. 
and he's just got his wives and a few servants, and he knows that, like, he's, he's kind of a goner, but he's still trying to, like, work this out. How can, I, how can I, again, pull one over on him? How can I, in my own strength, in my own power, make this happen? How can I get, out, how can I get myself out of this one? And so he knows that he's going to meet him the next day, and he falls asleep, and God comes to him in the form of this man. And Jacob, in typical fashion, sees this guy, and he's like, ah! <laughs> and, he just, and he just wrestles with him. He doesn't realize at first that he's wrestling God, but that's who he's wrestling. And so, you got to kind of get the idea here, um, because again, you could read this text one way, and go, oh man, Jacob must have been a pretty buff dude if he can wrestle God. Well, not, not really. So this, like, this literally happened last night, and if any of you guys are like dads with boys, I'm sure you have kind of the same thing, but I don't mess with the older boys anymore. I get sore when I wrestle them, and I, they hurt me. Um, but, but Jordy is still, you know, he's eight years old, and he's just like skin and bones, <laughs> scrawny little guy. And literally, almost every night when we go to bed, you know, I kind of like tickle him or something, you know, or we kind of wrestle a little bit. But literally last night, you know, I, I, and then I finally, I'm like, okay, enough, 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 enough. And we, we put him to bed. But then I turn to go out his door and he jumps out again and he grabs onto my leg. <laughs> He's like, no, <laughs> dad. Now, now, so this is the, what you got to get here. It's like, I mean, he, he weighs nothing. Like at any time, you could pick him up and just kind of, dispose of him but you know you're kind of you know trying to play along and that's what God's doing here with with Jacob and again you see this and that finally so so it's night and this is important it's at night um, and this is kind of a picture of Jacob's life wrestling in the dark not knowing what he's fully who he's fully engaging or what he's fully going after but um but just wrestling. And now the, the dawn begins to break. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that nobody can see God face to face and live. So God, it, it, again, he's wrestling this guy. In the, again, dead of night. There's no like street lamps or you know, anything. It's totally pitch black. But now as the, as the sun begins to come up, God says, okay, you gotta, you gotta let me go. And he's already touched his hip, so he's weakened him. But Jacob continues to cling on. <laughs> it's like Jordy clinging on. No! He says, I won't, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And so I think Jacob was beginning to see that this was some sort of supernatural figure. Again, Jacob had had other situations in his life. You remember the story of Jacob's ladder where he has this vision and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it up to heaven. That happened a few chapters earlier. So I think he begins to know that he's wrestling with an angel or some sort of maybe divine figure, not fully sure. And so he, so he, cries, out, so he cries out for this blessing. And then God says this to him, though. Okay, this is important. He says, after Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me, in verse 27, God says, what is your name? Jacob says, Jacob. And remember, what does Jacob mean? Deceiver. Again, God, whenever he asks a question, not because he needs an answer, but he's getting him to confess, who are you? I'm a deceiver. I've lived my whole life as a shady cat. And God says, I know. I want to make sure you know. 
And then he says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And because Jacob means deceiver, Israel, it's two, two words, and again, sorry to get a little technical here, but the first part is, is strive or fight, and then El. So in the Bible, the word, there's several names for God, but one of the most common ones is like Elohim or El Shaddai. You might have heard some of those. But, so it's Israel, strive, and El. So it can be taken two different ways. Strives with God, but also that God will strive for. Or fights against God, but also that God will fight, will fight for. And again, in this case, both are true. Is it Jacob is wrestling, he's fighting, he's fighting with God, but God has humbled him, he's touched his hip, he's now gonna walk with a limp the rest of his days, he now is forced to embrace weakness. Okay, it's the idea here, God touching his hip. But God's also saying, now that I've humbled you, now that you've encountered me, you're humble. Now I will, do the, I will be the one that will fight for you. Does that make sense? And <clears throat> so again, those are just some of the kind of the big ideas, but go back to Psalm 24. And there's something really profound and beautiful that I think God has for us here. And quite honestly, this past week, I've just been really captivated by this verse, and that's this passage about, of Jacob about, about wrestling with God is that here's, here's one of the biggest things that's been speaking to my heart is that first of all like I said back in Genesis 32 Jacob thought that his biggest fight was with Esau he thought Esau was where the battle was but that's not where the battle was the battle was with God and I'm telling you guys, the exact same thing is true of our lives over and over and over again. We think that the battle, the biggest battle that we need to face, the thing that we need to overcome, is we need to figure out, I don't know, it could be anything, how to have a better marriage. We might think that the battle is with our spouse. We might think that the battle is with our kids. We might think that the battle is with, is with our parents. We might think that the battle is with our boss or with a coworker. We might think that the battle is that we need more money. We need more finances. We need whatever it might be. That's not where the battle is where you need to go, where you need to take all of your angst, all of your effort, rather than being like Jacob and using your own strength and your own power and your own wit and your own deception and your own slickness and trying to figure things out, you need to take all that and you need to go with God. You need to go to God, I should say. That's where the battle is. And the blessing that Jacob receives from this is that because if you go to God, and again, God, God tells him there in, Psalm 30, or in, in Genesis 32, it's an interesting phrase. He goes, you have striven or you fought with God and with men and have prevailed. But here's what it looks like when you win with God, is you walk with a limp. That's the win. And I think what, what, what David is calling us to here in Psalm 24 is it, guys, that we would be a people, and this is always supposed to be the mark of God's people, that above everything else, that we know that the biggest fight, but in a good way, that we need to engage in is with God. Not, 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 hear me, not that he's mean, not in any way that he's our enemy, 
But that's where we need to go. That's who we need to cling on to. He's the place where we find our blessing. It's not in making it for ourselves. It's not in our own wisdom and in what we can accomplish or what we can try to make happen. I mean, I, I want us to get this because I feel like this is a word for us in this season. I feel like it's a word for like the, the entire like American church. Like in our, in our, in our prosperity and in being well-resourced and, and in all that we can do, we just kind of make it happen. And we think that we can build something and bring it about. But I'm telling you, we can't. And again, another little nugget here of just the context of Jacob. Like he's finally, at this point in time, he's going back into the promised land. So he'd been out of the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and then to him. And he'd been away and he'd been working for Laban and he'd been doing his thing and living this deceitful life all these years. But he's getting ready to go back into the promised land. But if you're going to go into the promised land, okay, the land that God gives you, then you're only going to receive it one way, with, with hands uplifted, arms wide open. You're only going to receive it by grace. And the blessing that God has for us, and again, I, I mean, uh, physical things completely aside, it's not what I'm talking about. But the blessing of Him, of His power, of His presence, of Him doing what only He can do in our midst. It's only going to happen as we seek His face. As we cling to Him. There's, there's something here in Jacob's life that even though, again, he, he had a lot of stuff that was wrong, there's something that pleased God. That he was willing to say, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. That God is pleased when we have that attitude. Saying, God, I'm not going to let you go unless I get you. You are the blessing. One of the things I pray all the time is, God, I want you to do at Mercy Hill what only you can do. I don't want what we can produce, guys. I don't want you to want what we can produce. Because what we can produce is a bunch of natural stuff, but what we need is the supernatural. We need God to save people. We need him to pour out his spirit. We need him to show himself strong. But again, over and over again, this is the paradox of the kingdom of God throughout the Bible. It's that in our weakness, we're made strong. It's when he touches our hip and we walk with a limp. That then he's able to bless us because then it's seen that it's not from us. It's not in our own strength. These people that seek his face, who cling to him like Jacob did. Hebrews chapter 11, again, just the same idea. Listen quickly, he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll jump in in verse 13. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, a, listen, they desire so the people of God, what do they desire? They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I want us to desire a heavenly country, what only God can do. I want us to desire God's kingdom. That's why Jesus taught us that when we pray, Lord, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
What we need is for God's kingdom to come in power and to move among us for his honor and for his glory. And God is not ashamed to be called those people's God. So the flip of this is, what is God kind of like, like ashamed of? He's ashamed of when we just ask him for natural stuff. When we just ask him for stuff on this earth, for stuff of the world. Now listen, we all have needs, and yes, you know, we're, we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Like he'll, he'll provide all that stuff, and we can, we can ask him for it. But that's not what we truly desire. That's not to be what we're truly going after. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things, they'll be added unto us. But if we're truly seeking first the kingdom of God, even when all these things are added unto us, we're like, well, it's just, it's just stuff. Here, take it. We use it to bless others and for his honor and glory. But Jacob had to confess his name. He had to confess that he was a deceiver. And we too, again, going back to verse 4, we need to confess that we do not have clean hands and a pure heart, that we have lifted up our soul to what is false, and that we have all sworn deceitfully. That's what we need to confess. That everything that God will do for us will be of sheer, unmerited favor, grace. Not because we earned it. Verse 7. Second part here. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Again, a question. Who is this King of glory? Then the answer. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Then verse 9 is an exact repeat of verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Verse 10, a repeat of verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The question. And then a slightly different answer. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So in the second part here, again, kind of shifts. It's a little bit different, um, but it definitely ties in with the first part, and especially with the name Israel that God would be the one that now fights for them or strives for them. One of the most uh, frequently used names of God in the Old Testament is this name that's used here at the end of verse 10 when he answers the question, who is this king of glory? And he gives the answer, the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts. This is literally God of armies. Okay? Chris Tomlin had a song several years ago that he wrote called God of Angel Armies. Everybody ever listen to that? I remember when we first moved down from Canton. Man, that must have been been a little while back, but we, we were living in a, uh, in a house down on Riggersville Road outside of Sugar Creek, and the boys all had this really big, they shared a bedroom, but it was, it was, a, huge, it was a huge room, and they were a little smaller, and so we had, had them in their beds, and, and in typical older brother fashion, um, Ephraim and Rowan would say scary things to Finn at night. Yeah, real loving brothers, I know, just terrible, but... Um, you know, and Finn, and Finn was pretty little, uh, but he was, I mean, he was maybe like, I don't know, three or, three or four years old, and they were a little bit, they were old enough to know better, anyway. But they would tell him, kind of scared, and he'd come out, and he'd say, I'm scared, and I would go in, <laughs> and I'd go in, and I'd, you know, kind of yell at them for scaring their brother, um, but then I'd sit down with them, and I'd sing that song. I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind, the God of angel armies, He's always on my side. Do you guys know that song? I think there's a reason why it's one of the most frequently used names in the Old Testament. 
God of angel armies, always on our side. Jacob, renamed to Israel. Yeah, strives with God, but also that God will strive for him. God will strive for us, his people, who understand that we have nothing to bring, but that we're weak. We walk with a limp, we embrace that weakness, and that we need, and that we need grace. So what's up with the gates lifting their heads? Verses seven and nine. I'm to wrap this up. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Same thing in verse nine. So almost all cities back then as a means of protection had gates, or, or, or I'm sorry, walls built around them, and then within the walls they would have gates that would open up. The new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven has a wall around it um, and uh, has 12 gates with the names of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel by the gates. I think that these gates here are a metaphor for God's people. Is that, so if you, if you go back to the beginning of the psalm, who does the, who does the earth belong to? God, okay. Um, and we as his people are to be the place that, um, that he, through which he enters in. So gates and doors, all of you came into this building this morning, obviously, right? You're here. How did you come in? Where did you enter? Through the door, right? Or through the gate, right? Uh, you didn't just magically walk through the wall, like you came in through the door. And I think that what he's calling for here when he says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors. Again, gates don't necessarily have heads, but we as his people, it's a metaphor, is that when he returns to the earth, his building, that is his. That the place where he's going to enter is through a people that have their heads lifted up, that are also seeking his face, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And the almighty, sovereign, creator God is going to come back and he is going to stand upon the earth that belongs to him. No one else. And he is going to make his glorious entry, as it were, through a people with hearts and faces and eyes that are turned upward. Because the treasure, the blessing that we've been seeking is not just something from his hand that he can give, but the blessing that we've been seeking is his face. Who he is. Does that make sense? Because this is what God wants for us. This is what his people should look like. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to begin to close. Just a couple practical things here that hopefully you'll see, you know, in the text as I've tried to explain it this morning as we just, as we just walk through it. Um, Guys, as, as we you know, continue just by God's grace, little by little, to, to grow with new people coming and uh, more and more people being added to our number and you know, people getting in small churches and all this, with any time um, there's growth, the drift is always towards complexity. It's towards complexity. Things get more complex. 
And while on the one hand, there's no way around some of those things. Like if you've, you know, if you've ever owned a business or grown a family, you know, add more kids. You, the more growth, the more complex things seem to get with schedules and whatever it might be. But as God's people, I'm telling you, like one of the things I just, I just felt the Lord press in my heart in reading this this past week is that as we grow, I, we don't have to grow towards complexity but by God's grace, I want us to grow towards simplicity. The simplicity being, there's one thing that we need. One thing. And it's him. It's him. And I want us to, with renewed resolve, and with renewed vigor, and with, re- vigor and with renewed exhortation from his word, to be seeking his face. Seeking his face with all of our heart. Again, I don't know what that, what that necessarily looks like for you. You know, um, I believe it's in Mark chapter 1, the life of Jesus. It says he would rise very early in the morning while it was still dark. And he would depart and go out to a desolate place where he prayed. Because again, I'm not just going to, I don't just want to talk about this this morning and be like, well, yeah, we're going to seek God's face. Uh, okay, that's great. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for you? What does it look like for us? Does it require getting up earlier? Jesus did that. Jesus is our example. Jesus was the sinless son of God. If he did it, how much more do we need to do it? Um, Jesus, when he taught us to pray, Matthew 6, he said, go in, shut the door. And pray to your Father who's in secret. Shut the door on distraction, things that are competing for your attention. Shut the door and to seek God's face. Guys, this is what, this is what God is calling us to. And we, need to. and we need to go after it. Second thing, as we close, is I just want you to think about your life this morning and the battles that you're facing. Or the battles that maybe you're not quite facing yet, but you're worried about them. You're like Jacob, and you're on the other side of the, the Jabbok Creek, or river, and you know that Esau is coming. And you're just certain that, man, I, I gotta figure this out. How am I gonna trick Esau again? I gotta do it again, he's gonna get me. I just wanna tell you that whatever that battle is, whatever that who, whoever or whatever that Esau is that you're facing and that you're worried about, I'm telling you guys, that's not where the battle is. That's not where your focus needs to be. You need to lift your eyes. You need to lift your head, oh you gates, and seek first the God of Jacob and that God would reveal, reveal his power to you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Lord, I pray that, Father, you would do this in us. I pray you'd cause us to be a people that are hungry and who seek you first. I pray, Father, that we would do what your law commands us to do, which is to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength that we would cling to you, that we would not let you go. 
until you bless us, not with stuff, but with you, with more of your presence, with more of your power, with more of your salvation. Not for our honor, not for our glory, but for yours. I pray that for all of our lives, Lord, that you would grant us the grace of being able to move towards simplicity and not complexity. Pray you help us to say with sincerity that there's only one thing that's needed, only one thing that's needed, and that is to sit at your feet. Take us there, Lord, as a church. We thank you that you are the God who fights for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would be victorious, Lord, as we give the battle to you over and over again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand with me.